Good evening, everyone. Uh, before I begin, uh, I would like to extend a very warm welcome to all of you to Yale and U.S. College. You know, this is not the usual location for an IPS SR Nathan lecture. We usually have it at NUS at the Office of Al uh, Alumni Relations Shaw Foundation House. But I thought we need a change of scene. And since I'm a member of the Yale NUS community, I wanted a lecture on my, in my own turf. And so I just, I've persuaded IPS and I thank them for agreeing to have one lecture here at least. Um, so uh, a warm welcome to the lecture and a warm welcome to the college. Now, um, as I was speaking to many of you um, just before we entered the hall, uh, many of you commented that this um, lecture co is coinciding with the bicentennial. Actually, um, I started my lecture, uh, lectures uh, before the bicentennial was officially launched um, last year, uh, but I'm sure there is some sort of uh, coincidence in terms of uh, the appointment of me as the, SR, the sixth SR Northern Fellow and the Bicentennial, because I'm sure they wanted a historian to be reflecting on Singapore's history during this um, period. Now, this is my third um, lecture in the series. Uh, and for those of you who have been following my lectures, you would have noticed uh, that I've been trying to situate Singapore's long history in the larger contexts of regional and global dynamics. I spoke of the continuities and disruptions in Singapore's past through cycles of historical developments and how Singapore was global long before the terms globalization and global cities became topical. In such a narrative, I explained Singapore's evolution as a port city, whose character and fortunes were determined by trade, movements of people, as well as regional and global politics. It has always been a connected entity and a nodal point of interlocking networks. And unlike a number of early, earlier prominent Asian port cities that have been bypassed by progress, I can think of Malacca, Rangoon, and Calcutta, for instance, Singapore stands as an example of a colonial port city that has managed to transform itself into a global metropolis. From a traditional entrepot port city serving regional trading networks, Singapore has evolved into a city-state and a nation-state whose economy is sustained and nourished by global economic conditions. As I showed in my last lecture, while the aspiration to be a global city-state was first articulated by Mr. S. Rajaratnam in 1972, the imperative of looking outwards and being globally connected was far from novel in Singapore's historical experiences. Singapore had historically functioned as a port sustained by flows of people and trading networks that stretch from the Persian Gulf to the south, southern coast of China. Today, Singapore seeks to position itself as a hub for the greater Asian region and beyond. Throughout its long history, I argue that the underlying plot of the Singapore story has not changed fundamentally. Singapore's rapid growth and status as a global city-state has attracted the attention of economists, sociologists, and geographers. Interestingly, historians preoccupied with colonial and nationalist uh, narratives have yet to grapple with the processes and conditions that explain Singapore's progress from port to global or airport city. A narrative of Singapore's development as port city thus offers an interesting case study. I'm not suggesting that the traditional narratives of Singapore as a colony and nation state 
are unimportant. But that studying Singapore as a port city gives us another key to understanding Singapore's identity. Studying Singapore as a port city assigns greater weight to external factors and global phenomenon in the shaping of the economy, society, and polity of Singapore. For instance, it considers how the character and personality of the island state might have roots in regional identities and dynamics that predate 1965 or even 1819. My lecture will address the following questions. What is a port city? What are its essential characteristics and how was Singapore's historical development and personality linked to and influenced by its foundations as a port polity? I would first like to set the scene with a comment on the study of port cities. Now, this is the conceptual part, so do bear with me a little. The scholarly literature on the roles and functions of port cities is a fairly rich one, but I would like to highlight three key features of historical port cities that are relevant for my narrative. First, port cities are not merely cities that happen to be on the shoreline. We're, just, we're not talking about a city that just happens to be by the coast. There are actually economic entities whose character is maritime in nature. Any serious consideration of the urban culture, personality, and the morphology of port cities would have to contend with their economic functions as nodes of sea-based trading networks. The port city is distinctive in that it is a place of contact where goods and people, as well as cultures, are transferred between land and maritime space. So it is not just being there as an accident of geography, but they serve a particular purpose, and that purpose defines their personality. So when one considers the social, cultural, and political connections within the port city, it is not difficult to see how its demographic and evolution, and demographic evolution is reflected in the city's economic functions. These functions, in turn, make the city cosmopolitan. In fact, requires it to be so, if it is to be successful. Scholars have pointed out that in port cities, races, cultures, and ideas, as well as goods from a variety of places, jostle, mix, and enrich with one another and the life of the city. Port cities not only function as locations for the movement of goods, labor, and capital, they also serve as nodal points for the reception and transmission of culture, knowledge, and information. Port cities are therefore not distinct, not only distinct physical entities, their functions also create opportunities and space for cultural mixing and hybridization. This is a picture of uh, the population in Singapore um, when it was a port city and uh, an emporium of the region. And you can see from the cultural mix that um, historical port cities were essentially multicultural, multilingual, and these centers were areas where there was a mix of different cultures being brought together. Um, examples of such centers include not just Singapore, of course, but like places like Batavia, Rangoon, and Penang. Like Singapore, these port cities were home to a mix of different ethnic communities. Second, the second uh, characteristic is that port cities cannot exist without a hinterland. There are a few definitions of hinterland, um, but I refer to a hinterland as the area that surrounds a large city or port, and which serves the city or port, and on which that place depends for economic growth. Port cities are necessarily linked 
to hinterlands by trade and serve as the window or the conduit through which the trade of the land is linked to the sea. So if you imagine a landmass and a port city at the edge of that landmass, that port city is usually the funnel or the conduit through which connections happen between the maritime space and the landmass. And the port cities are like windows, if you, if you like, of this sort of connections. But more than just economic funnels, they also present complex and profound influences on the hinterlands they serve. They might not be connected, but they influence each other. Now, there is a typology of different types of hinterlands. These include immediate hinterlands, the port area itself, primary hinterland, the area where the port and the city assumes, assume a commanding role and determine the life of the area, commodity hinterland based on shipment of particular types of commodities and inferred hinterlands, that is the port's hegemony over a particular area. In the 1970s and 80s, the main preoccupation of studies on colonial port cities was the part that they played in the development of colonial control in Asia. Now, these studies revealed that colonial port cities often facilitated Western influence, or they served as beachheads for colonial expansion, and that Western trade systems and demands transformed the market hierarchies in colonial port cities, as well as the mercantile elites and communities in their hinterlands. So while the hinterlands may be very traditional and have indigenous practices, the port cities usually the point of entry of colonial penetration and the spread and expansion of colonial influence, and in the process, transforming indigenous or local communities. Port cities that function as entrepôts may not have specifically de uh, defined hinterlands uh, of their own. So we have traditional understanding of hinterlands as a very defined space, but port cities that does transshipment or entrepôt businesses um, do not usually have clearly defined hinterlands. Instead, their maritime space, the space in which they, they operate, um, or networks of seabond links will constitute their hinterlands. Singapore is a prime example. For extended periods of its long history, the port polity served as a transshipment center whose development depended largely on its position and function in the trading networks in which it was situated. These trading networks were determined by a combination of geography and available nodes of maritime transportation, how far ships can sail to or where they can come from. In other words, Singapore's existence did not depend at that time on a surrounding or nearby landmass. The main economic base that supported the small island's very existence was its maritime port, and Singapore's hinterland was effectively the maritime space around it, which included much of the Southeast Asian archipelago. Third, studies of port cities have addressed the extent to which the composition and social structure of their populations have been determined by their port functions. These port functions have shaped mercantile groups and their institutions, as well as the very milieu in which specific groups existed and operated. It is also evident that port cities are influenced to a large extent by the hinterlands. How cities relate to the hinterlands often hint at the ways at which city, global cities were formed, transformed, and extended beyond their immediate geographical territoriality. By focusing on how Singapore identified its hinterland and how the hinterland had in turn influenced its development, a narrative could be developed for explaining Singapore's historical evolution. For long periods of its history, 
as a port engaged in entrepot trade, Singapore lacked a clearly defined hinterland. It then found a land-based hinterland in the Malayan Peninsula in the late 19th century, only to lose it in 1965. Throughout, um, Singapore has continued to define and redefine its hinterland, and if such a historical perspective were adopted, the underlying plot in the narrative is simply this. Singapore is a port city whose development and growth were tied to its functions within the respective regional and global networks in which it operated. Let me elaborate. Soon after the signing of the 1824 Dutch, Anglo-Dutch Treaty, which confirmed Singapore's status as a British or East India Company possession, its position as an important regional port and emporium began to grow. Trade within Southeast Asia accounted for nearly one quarter of its overall volume of trade in the late 1820s. China accounted for another 23% and India 16%. The trade was essentially a maritime one. Trade with mainland Southeast Asia accounted for just 5%. In other words, trade with the land itself, the mainland itself was just about 5%. Singapore's position between two oceans, the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, appeared to be more important than its location at the southernmost tip of the Asian landmass. In other words, it was the maritime space, Singapore's location between two oceans, that was more critical for its trade than its position at the tip of a landmass because the trade, overland trade, was not as significant as the maritime trade. Located where it was, Singapore gathered for itself the archipelago trade, the trade of the islands, while Penang, further north, served the neighbouring countries in Burma, North Sumatra, and the west coast of the Malayan Peninsula. Singapore soon became the great emporium and fulcrum of the trade of the neighbouring seas, dealing mainly in local produce known collectively as straits produce, the agricultural and mineral products uh, grown or produced in the surrounding archipelago and brought into the colonial ports for packaging and shipping to consumer countries. The nature of the trade and the transactions gradually incorporated the various islands of the East Indies, the coastal areas of the peninsula, Siam, and parts of Indochina. As such, Singapore's commercial hinterland was maritime-based rather than land-based. The extent or reach of Singapore's commercial hinterland was indicated by the origins of the vessels that arrive regularly at the port of Singapore to trade, from the Celebes, East Java, Gulf of Siam, Indochina, and the Malay Peninsula. So if you look at this map, um, I shaded the area which could be seen as constituting the maritime hinterland of Singapore. It was not so much this land base, but it was the seas around it, and the extent of this hinterland was determined by the trading vessels, the sailing vessels, and the reach in which they could move at that time. So, um, in the early 19th century, the multitude of maritime vessels from around the, reg the region collectively determined this hinterland and the system of trade in Singapore. As trade grew in volume, the morphology of the port began to reflect its hinterlands. So the, 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 the trade and the people who are coming in started to define um, the port. Different trading communities now gathered in the port vicinity and were physically separated in various sectors of the city. 
These hinterlands not only provided the material resources that sustained Singapore, they also supplied the human capital that eventually constituted um, the plural and cosmopolitan society of Singapore. As an open port city that functioned as an emporium, it adopted a liberal immigration policy enabling the easy movement of traders and workers that were key to its development as a trading centre. As I mentioned earlier, this relationship between Singapore and its hinterlands were defined by maritime-based trading networks that had preceded the establishment of the colonial port in Singapore in the 19th century. These sort of trading patterns had existed even, even before the arrival of the British. The trading pattern that formed the 19th century was based on the intermeshing of a number of pre-existing networks that connected the Arab lands and India to the west and China to the east. Overlapping networks and uh, overlapping hinterlands and networks created in the port city a polyglot migrant world constituted by streams of immigrants from China, India, the Malay Archipelago, and other far-flung places. It was this, during this period of growth as a colonial port city, when much older and indigenous transnational connections were revitalized, that Singapore became the heart of the intellectual world of Southeast Asia. So on the one hand, trade, um, commerce, but by bringing people together, the port city also became an intellectual hub. From the late 19th century onwards, the port city was not only bustling with commerce, it was the center for Malay culture and literature, of Chinese diasporic intellectual and political ferment, and of Indian debates on cultural and religious reformism. As Singapore became the center of overlapping migrant worlds, it developed as a major intellectual node in which rich innovations in thought and behavior arose. The port city became a dynamic force for social change. It became what T.N. Harper calls a diasporic public sphere, where information and ideas from outside lay in creative tensions with an emerging local experience. This experience was common in other colonial port cities like Rangoon and Penang, which were similarly home to hybrid communities that helped to shape a vibrant Asian public sphere. Until 1874, late 19th century, when the British began extending political control over the Malay states, Singapore did not have a clearly defined and formal hinterland that was under British administration. So uh, as I was explaining, they were trading around the region. Many of the, uh, of the parts they were trading were under the control of the Dutch. The British extended their control in the Malay Peninsula uh, from about the late um, 19th century, 18, uh, 1870s and, and onwards. And then when they started opening Malaya, Singapore started to have a more clearly defined land-based hinterland because Singapore became a staple port to the Malay Peninsula. This is just a picture of, of, of the port of Singapore, a staple port to the Malay Peninsula. During this period, the traditional idea of the hinterland supplying its cities was turned on its head because usually hinterlands supply food and everything to sustain the port city, which was essentially a point of trade. But Singapore played the reverse role because it played the role of supplier through its exports to the Malayan Peninsula, uh, to the Malayan hinterland and the Dutch East Indies. Singapore became the conduit through which food supplies from Siam, Burma, 
and Indochina were redirected to workers in the Malayan and Netherlands export industries. As a staple port to the Malayan Peninsula, tin, rubber, and petroleum extracted from the peninsula were processed in Singapore, and from there, exported to the rest of the world. The links between Singapore and its hinterland were very clearly defined by the time and took on several forms. First, there were comprehensive transport links that connected the various mines in Western Malaya to Singapore. The rail and road networks that developed with the rise of the tin and rubber industry integrated the island fully with its northern hinterland. More than transport links, the integration of Singapore with its northern hinterland was facilitated by the integrated economy that revolved around tin and rubber, a complex system of trade and credit incorporating European merchant or agency houses, Asian dealers, and local retail retailers was established in Singapore. The following statistics demonstrate that by the final quarter of the 19th century, the following processing and export of staple produce from the Malayan hinterland had become a mainstay of Singapore's port-driven economy. These are some statistics. You can see that in terms of the tonnage of tin reaching Singapore from 1864, it has increased dramatically by 1879. The number of vessels reaching Singapore from both sides of the peninsula, again, rising and increasing quite dramatically. This is a picture of Pulau Brani, where tin smelting was done, Singapore's exports of tin would continue to grow. By 1899, just at the turn of the century, the, uh, the account, tin accounted for nearly a fifth of the value of Singapore's exports. Singapore was also the world's main tin exporter at this time. Similarly, by 1918, the rubber auction in Singapore amounted to nearly a quarter of the world's exports. The large quantities of Malayan tin and rubber that made their way to Singapore's market, stimulated its economy, and paved the way for the construction of port facilities that were unrivaled uh, by regional competitors. It also prompted the establishment of a government port trust known as the Singapore Harbour Board from 1913, which eventually became the Port of Singapore Authority. This is the uh, statistics that show that Singapore had continued to grow in its volume of trade since that time. Now, I'm telling you this story to show a change. Um, earlier, I had explained that the hinterland was a maritime one. It depended on where the ships came from and where the ships could sail to, and the Singapore hinterland was not defined by its proximity to uh, the northern uh, peninsula, but by its ability to reach out to a range of ports that were operating around the region. And Singapore was in the business of entrepot, which meant that transshipment was happening. But by the late 19th century, that changed somewhat when Singapore became a staple port to the Malayan hinterland, which basically locked it into the Malayan economy, and it was integrated by physical infrastructure, rails, roads, as well as the trading system and the credit systems that were developed. Now, that somehow um, created the impression that the Malay Peninsula was the natural hinterland of Singapore. Because Singapore had, by the end of, by the beginning of the 20th century, become part, such an integral part of the Malayan economy that it was inconceivable to think of it any other way. That Malaya had always been that part that Singapore's hinterland that was destined to be. 
Now, even as Singapore was developed as a naval base in the 1920s, defence planning actually incorporated the entire peninsula. Defence planning was not just focused on Singapore, the island itself, but included the peninsula. And uh, the persistent myth of the Singapore guns facing the wrong direction notwithstanding, military planners had all along incorporated the peninsula as part of the defence sector of the naval base in Singapore. This close port hinterland relationship was thought to be a natural one, but it was soon torn apart by imperial policymakers in London. In the midst of the Second World War, planners in London began drawing strategies for the post-war development of Malaya and Singapore. The Malayan Union Plan, which was hatched in 1944, envisaged a separation between Malaya and Singapore. Adopted and implemented in 1946, the Union Plan saw an amalgamation of the Malay states in which Singapore, with its predominantly Chinese population, did not seem to fit. The Malayan Union Plan did not last and was scuttled on the back of determined opposition by a nascent Malay nationalist movement, which opposed the plan's liberal citizenship rules and the political emasculation of the sultans. It was eventually replaced by the Federation Scheme, which addressed many of the concerns raised by the opponents of the Malayan Union plan. But this did not change the position of Singapore. The separation, much to the disappointment of people in Singapore, seemed permanent. So this was the taking out of that hinterland that many people in Singapore thought was the natural hinterland of Singapore. Hopes were harbored that Singapore would return to the Malayan fold someday. The staple port had become so used to its hinterland that it had become inconceivable that Singapore could actually survive without it. This was an interesting case of historical amnesia. As I had said just a while ago, Singapore had early, earlier thrived without relying primarily on that overland hinterland. In any case, even as political developments in Singapore and Malaya began to take off uh, on separate trajectories after 1947, the ultimate aim of Singapore's political leadership was to re-establish a union between the port city and its northern hinterland. From 1948, Singapore leaders from a range of political parties argued that political separation was an anomaly, that the island and the island's first two elected chief ministers, David Marshall and Lim Yew Hock, made repeated overtures to the Malayan Prime Minister Tunku Abdul Rahman, urging him to consider merger with Singapore. The Malayan leader chose, however, not to reciprocate. Uncertain if the conditions were right where Malayan interests were concerned to consider bringing Singapore back to its fold. It was only through the determined pursuit of merger by Lee Kuan Yew and his People's Action Party after 1959 that merger between Singapore and the Federation of Malaya became a reality. Among the platforms upon which the PAP campaigned in the 1959 elections was the pledge to bring Singapore into a united Malaya. From its inception in November 1954, the PAP had declared as one of its main objectives the ending of colonialism in Singapore. And this would be done through the establishment of an independent and non-communist national state of Malaya comprising the Federation of Malaya and the colony of Singapore. The PAP built a case on, an, on economic arguments. The need to create out of the Malayan hinterland a common market that would sustain and nurture Singapore's attempts at industrialization. Throughout the 1950s, the island colony had been undergoing, under mounting economic pressures. 
due to high rate of population growth in the island and the declining entrepot trade. Its re-exports to the region had been dramatically reduced owing to import restrictions on the part of many of its neighbours to protect their own nascent industries. Entrepot trade, the mainstay of Singapore's economy, was also threatened by countries increasingly engaged in direct trading. So, in, uh, population pressure, the decline of entrepot trade, and the fear was that the economy was no longer sustainable and that the only way for Singapore to grow was to industrialise, but Singapore's market was too small, and to industrialise, you need a place to sell your goods, and the common market up north in Malaya was the place that would have to constitute the common market. There was the urgent need to ensure that employment opportunities would increase at a pace corresponding to the rapid growth of the island's population. For Singapore to provide enough jobs for its young and fast-growing population, as well as reduce its dependence on entrepot trade, it would have to embark on a cost of rapid industrialization. But for this to work, integration with the economy and markets of the Federation was crucial. The finance minister then, Dr. Goh Keng Sui, saw this very clearly and commented that whatever we do in Singapore, major changes in our economy are only possible if Singapore and the Federation are integrated as one economy. Of course, there were political reasons for merger as well. There was a fierce tussle for power between a well-organized and popular left-wing group and a faction led by Lee Kuan Yew. The successful conclusion of merger leading to the end of colonial rule would take the wind out of the sails of the left-wing movement and the anti-communist British and Malayan authorities would then align with Lee Kuan Yew and they would be staunch allies in Lee's fight against his left-wing and pro-communist rivals. And this is what the PAP was trying to achieve. But essentially, Singapore's case for merger was built on the need for a clearly defined and functioning hinterland that would continue to support the port economy. So the debt was taken out in 1946 after the war. Singapore wanted a return to it. And more than that, without some form of economic integration or common market, the Singapore and Malayan economies would find themselves in direct competition with each other, particularly in attracting foreign investors. Singapore, with its smaller workforce and higher production costs, found that it was in a disadvantageous position as many local companies, such as small rubber footwear firms, were moving out of Singapore into the Federation where costs of production were much lower. Compl complicating matters was Singapore's status as a free port economy. Companies operating within the state could not rely on tariff protection for their goods, unlike those operating in the Federation. Without the hinterland and a common market, Singapore was therefore faced with a double whammy. It could not protect its local industries by imposing tariffs on foreign competition, and its manufactured products would not, could not easily find their way into the Malayan markets because of the Federation's tariff barrier. Well, Singapore eventually, as we all know, regained that northern hinterland when it formed Malaysia, with the Federation of Malaya, Sabah, and Sarawak in 1963. But this proved to be short-lived. In August 1965, following two stormy years in Malaysia, Singapore separated from the Federation. Political differences proved insurmountable, and once again, the hinterland had to change. After separation, and since independence, Singapore has continued to define and redefine its hinterland. 
1972, Rajaratnam challenged Singapore to aspire towards global city status, making the world its hinterland. More recently, in 2001, then Prime Minister Goh Chok Tong spoke of a seven-hour hinterland, encompassing a region within a seven-hour flight radius from Singapore. He highlighted China and India as new markets within this hinterland, and this hinterland included 2.8 billion people living in various countries and cities, with hundreds of millions in the middle-income group. Subsequently, in 2004, Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong made mention of this seven-hour hinterland referring to major markets such as ASEAN, China, India, Japan, Korea, and Australia. And while common market was not achieved when Singapore was in Malaysia, our northern neighbour remains a hinterland of sorts, as Malaysia is Singapore's second largest trading partner after China, with total bilateral trade amounting to 93.8 billion in 2016. If you look at the size of trading partners, you can see that Malaysia is right there at the top. And Malaysia's trade with Singapore accounted for 13% of total trade, only topped by Malaysia's trade with China. So they are both very major trading partners. The colonial masters are long gone, and we are more than 50 years from separation, but the economic, cultural, and personal ties remain realized through old and new networks, physical and virtual. And of course, we know that this relationship is constantly being tested, and there have been recent developments which will, continue, which will test this relationship again. So, has the decline in relative importance of the Malayan hinterland for Singapore affected the evolution of Singapore from colonial port city to global city-state? Not much, I would argue. For Singapore, the port city, the shifting circumstances in which economic space was constantly being redefined meant that hinterlands were not fixed entities and were regularly being constructed. As a trading port that has evolved over time, Singapore's hinterland has varied over the years. It was maritime space from the 14th century to the late 19th century before Malaya became the obvious proximate physical economic hinterland. In Singapore's current manifestation, a global city in a globalized world, the idea of a fixed economic hinterland has lost its meaning. Singapore does not primarily serve peninsula Malaysia in a foreland hinterland relationship, but depends more on its role as a hub port in global shipping networks. But there is no question that trade will remain the lifeblood of Singapore. From regional emporium to Singapore Incorporated, Singapore has remained at its core an economic entity totally dedicated to its regional and international outward-looking vocation of trade and commerce. This can be seen from Singapore's continued reliance on exports, which includes re-exports. And the size of the export economy um, is evident here, so Singapore continues to depend on that kind of economy for its existence. The port continues to shape the fortunes of the country. Singapore has been ranked the leading maritime capital globally by Norwegian consulting firm Menon Economics in 2012, 2015, and 2017, based on categories like shipping, ports, and logistics, and maritime technology alongside cities like Hamburg, London, Oslo, and Shanghai. Singapore's pursuit of free trade agreements with partners worldwide underscores the role that international trade has played in the evolution of the island state and the vital importance of a global hinterland 
for its survival. These are some of the FTAs that have been signed over the years. Singapore continues to create and look for opportunities for more FTAs. So from a traditional entrepot port city, Singapore has metamorphosed into a global city-state. Its role as the middleman in regional trade may have been eroded in the 1970s with the emerging economic nationalism of neighboring countries, but its enduring entrepot instinct remains. This is perhaps best summed up in the following remarks by then Minister Giorgio in 2000. And this is what he said, that the instinct is that, you know, you, you buy cheapers, you sell dearers, we don't grow coffee in Singapore, but yet we are a major supplier of coffee beans to the world. We produce no spices, but we're the center of the Southeast Asian spice trade, um, largest exporter of Swiss watches in the region. We have no oil, but we refine a lot of it, and we are the trading center for oil and other related products. Singapore's trade is 2.5 times its GNP. Today, Singapore's trade is more than three times its GDP, the highest trade to GDP ratio in the world. The op operations may be more sophisticated, the materials dealt with different, and the scope much wider. But at the heart of the thriving economy lies a great port through which goods still find their way to regional and international markets. Furthermore, as Mr. Yeo puts it, we are moving from seaport to airport to teleport, but embracing all three. This can be seen from Changi Airport's continued expansion and the ongoing construction of Tuas Port, which will consolidate Singapore's port operations or seaport operations and handle up to 65 million 20-foot equivalent or TEU when fully operational. This is an increase from the PSA's existing capacity of 50 million TEUs. To put things in perspective, in 2017, Singapore was the second busiest port contain, uh, container port in the world uh, after Shanghai, handling over 33.6 million TEUs. So not satisfied with the capacity, with the size that um, we have already achieved as the second busiest port, there is ambition to even expand it and grow it and to build capacity to handle double the size of the, uh, the TEU that we handled in 2017. So, I conclude. It's a long conclusion. <laughs> in this lecture, I've attempted to examine how the dynamics generated by a port city in search of hinterlands have shaped Singapore's history. I first argue that Singapore had a fluid hinterland, both literally fluid and metaphorically. Its economic, social, and cultural hinterlands were defined by maritime trade and the networks that were developed as a result of its commercial activities. Consequently, its historical evolution and outlook is cosmopolitan and its identity an ongoing state of culture mixing. In this respect, Hong Kong offers an interesting comparison. Throughout its evolution as a port city, Hong Kong has had a clearly defined and dominant hinterland, China. With the handover of Hong Kong from Britain to China, Hong Kong increasingly shares in the strengths and weaknesses of China's conditions and institutions. For instance, Hong Kong's approach to port governance is likely to become more focused due to competition from Shanghai and Shenzhen. The establishment of the Hong Kong Maritime and Port Board in 2016 marks a shift from its earlier leisure fair style of economic governance linked to its history as a British colony with little government intervention. 
While Hong Kong retains its cosmopolitan and open reputation, it is no longer an independent city-state as it was reabsorbed into its hinterland in 1997. I've also tried to demonstrate that hinterlands are not always fixed entities and that port cities engaged in entrepot trade have to contend with shifting and sometimes overlapping hinterlands. The challenge here is for scholars, for scholars especially, is to have conceptual clarity about the multifaceted nature of hinterlands, not only in spatial terms, but in functional meanings as well. Is the relationship determined by functions or process, the relationship between a port city and its hinterland? Do hinterlands still have meanings in a globalized world? In the case of Singapore, it may be useful to ask if hinterlands locate the port cities or vice versa. Does the port city go in search of hinterlands? Is the story of Singapore after 65 one of a continued search for or the creation of some form of hinterland? Singapore's still expanding network of FTAs reflects this preoccupation for expanding the city-state's economic space. Finally, I want to ask if port cities cease being port cities. Do they eventually not become port cities or lose that characteristic? Many important port cities in the world have indeed fallen by the wayside, bypassed by most of their former enriching flow of exchange and hybridization. Calcutta is, oh, sorry, this was the a slide I wanted to show earlier of Singapore's um, capacity as a container port, and you can see that it is only second to Shanghai and it continues to grow. You wanna take a picture of that? Or I can move on, yeah. <laughs> Okay, this, oh, sorry, uh, was someone taking a picture? I, I can go back to it. Just for a few seconds, yeah. While I take a sip of water. I was talking about former port cities that were very prominent, very successful, that have been bypassed um, by their former flows of exchange and hybridization. And I thought I should mention Calcutta as an example. Uh, formerly the capital of Britain, um, uh, sorry, British India, it was an imperial city and a thriving port city. Okay? Uh, then it suffered two major setbacks. In 1912, the British shifted the imperial capital to New Delhi, and the partition of Bengal in 1947 was another major setback, with the influx of refugees in the city putting considerable strain on Calcutta's resources and leading to severe overcrowding. Furthermore, Calcutta's trade had been dominated by an inland commercial hinterland, but partition deprived the port of at least 30% of that hinterland. Today, Calcutta is a, local, is a large regional city and some regard it as India's cultural center, but it has declined in economic strength. The extent of port cities' vulnerabilities can be seen from how quickly they rise and fall. Shanghai is the opposite um, story. Shanghai has rapidly risen to be the world's leading port. On the other hand, New York's port has shrunk, and London, formerly one, formerly one of the most important maritime hubs in the world, is no longer a major world port. Even then, Ports serving land, seas, exchange have developed into some of the biggest cities in the world today. They may no longer be the largest functioning ports, but they have become very successful cities in other ways. 
Their traditional port functions have been eclipsed by their other roles as manufacturing, financial, service, and administrative centres. Therefore, allowing them to retain their dynamism and cosmopolitanism previously tied to their status as port cities. London and New York are prominent examples of port cities turned global cities with diverse functions. In particular, London's Riverine port struggled to remain commercially viable in light of innovations like the bulk carrier and container. However, London continues to thrive as a global financial centre, having the most foreign banks of any financial centre and remaining a top trader of bonds and currencies. London also leads the world in terms of areas of expertise like maritime law, journalism and intelligence, continuing to retain and attract human capital. Singapore has morphed into a leading world maritime city while retaining its position as one of the busiest container ports in the world. It is currently the world's um, top transshipment hub, feeding transshipment to smaller ports which lack deep water or cannot afford investing in facilities that would enable container handling. So in a way, it has not moved away from its traditional entrepot functions. But what next? An open city-state sustained by global flows will face tensions when it has also to function as a nation-state. The requirements of an international clientele and an open economy on the one hand and the interests of a local citizenry on the other hand may often prove inimical. More fundamentally, the construction of national identity will constantly be subjected to the shifting strains of the myriad of cultural forms and traditions that are characteristic of a port city. So if Singapore is to maintain and continue to adhere to its instincts as a port city, um, how will it square with some of the imperatives of being a nation state at the same time? The tensions and contradictions of a city that is also a country will be the subject of my next lecture. So stay tuned. Thank you very much. Uh, I've been given the privilege of moderating this evening's proceedings uh, and uh, the privilege of making some comments before we will open up the uh, question to the floor. I want to make uh, three observations of what Professor Dan has spoken on this evening. Uh, and I think Partly, I will, as the comments, push it a little bit to kind of make it a question of the present of the present Singapore in contrast to the historical development that has been so clearly laid out uh, by Professor Tan. I think, so the first point is about our cosmopolitanism. And I think that's a really important uh, observation of our past. Because as, as a trading post, as a trading point, as an emporium of trade, the composition of the population was unavoidably multi-ethnic and, and derived from uh, a very wide part of East and South Asia and Southeast Asia. So that, you know, the composition, so our current composition as 
by Mr. Lee Sin Lung say the, the multiracialism of our composition has its beginning actually in terms of our economic activities. And that of course has an influence of the public culture that, uh, that exists on the island. And the culture is one of sort of hybridity, of a mixing. If you think about the food that we eat, a lot of the food items actually are very strange. Um, Indians don't eat noodles, but they sell mee goreng. <laughs> mee goreng is not an Indian word. It's a Malay word, Chinese Malay word, but it's the Indians that popularize it in the hawker centers. Only in Singapore you'll find this kind of strange hybrid combination of culture. So the culture orientation, as Professor Dan said, has always been fairly cosmopolitan. And cosmopolitanism is an interesting characteristic because it actually recognizes and lived with differences. And as, as Prof Dan said, by the early 20th century, Singapore had become, and I quote him, Singapore became the intellectual world of Southeast Asia and a gathering point of Malay intellectual and political thinkers. Many of the sort of radical Malay <clears throat> thinkers had been using Singapore as a place not only to gather but also to publish their material. And this, unfortunately, is seldom mentioned enough in the, in the Singapore, in, the, in, the, in, the, in current Singapore. And it was also a place of refuge for Chinese intellectuals from the civil war that was happening in the mainland. They were all, they were mostly modernists, so anyone who went to Chinese schools in the 1940s and 50s would actually be very influenced by modernist thinking, which actually accounts for a very large part of why the Chinese middle school students were the most radical students in the decolonization process and not the English educated, right? And of course, uh, the Indian population was very much concerned about the independence movement, the cultural uh, uh, and religious debate that was going on in India. So in a certain sense, that's, that constitute a very vibrant intellectual community in Singapore. Now, the problem, of course, is we, if we bring it forward, and this is uh, preempted by Professor Tan's closing remark about next week's, or next lecture on identity and nation <laughs> in two months' time, but I'll give him a foretaste of that. The thing is that with the emergence of a nation, the party, the party that sort of external orientation to the home, to the you know, home country, has to do with the fact that Singapore wasn't, a opt, wasn't actually an entity in which one could have invested emotionally and identified with emotionally. So with the emergence of the nation and the shift of the population to increasingly local bond, right, this actually, uh, Singapore and being Singaporean becomes something we could invest ourselves, becomes something that is our own, and that that external orientation actually declined. And unfortunately, I think also 
the rise of na uh, nation, to a certain extent, the kind of nationalism that is necessary to support the idea of the nation, in fact, narrows down our culture and in fact, has a certain negative effect on the openness and the cosmopolitanism of the past. So that's my first point. The second point continues uh, with the idea of urban public culture. The interesting thing is that, as Professor Tanner has shown, the economy of the port continues to be a very significant part of Singapore's economy. And it's not only at home that the, that the port is, the harbor is, and the port is so important, but also actually because of the management of the port, the PSA International now operates in a very wide scope of ports around the world, both as consultant and sometimes as direct management. But the interesting thing is that when I, I actually know quite a lot about the harbor because my father owned a lorry company. So by the time I was 12 or 13, I was in and out of the harbor all the time because those days there were no child labor laws. <laughs> so I was already doing work for my father as a delivery clerk. So I was in and out all the time, sometimes even in school uniform while I was in there. And so at that time, the port, not on, the port was a very important part of everyday life because it was a very major employer, directly and indirectly, of a very significant portion of the population. And so, you know, it's part, it, you, you, you always have someone that you know that are dealing with the port. Now, unfortunately, what I, what I would now call, to a certain extent, the culture that was determined by the port, the sort of romance of the, of the port has largely disappeared. Largely disappeared because, I mean, and, you know, by which I mean culture both high and low because the, the port itself actually has resonance and generated literature, generated commentaries, journalistic commentaries on life in Singapore. And uh, so, and it was, of course, you know, Anson Road used to have bars, sex workers, all kinds of sleaze that comes with the port that is part of the romance. <laughs> now that has in fact all disappeared as a result of containerization. Because now my nephews who run the lorry company doesn't have to go to the port anymore. All right, there are almost no, and the port continues to be a very important economy but it's not in our consciousness anymore. It's just there. And from Cambridge, all we see are cranes that destroyed the sea view from Cambridge Hills. Okay. So I think that is, so again, I mean that, that uh, so the, the centrality of the port, in spite of its economic importance, has disappeared from our, from our everyday life. The third point I think is politically really important, which is to, to actually rethink this whole 
by now the myth of sustainability of Singapore. That is to say, for the longest time, we always said that, and this was very important in the, 50, in the 60s, that you know, as an independent nation, as, as an island nation, we could not possibly economically survive, which is why the, the battle for mergers, the, you know, the really fairly um, intense struggle about around the question of merger and Malaysia. And I think is, as Professor Dan said, this came about because of uh, sort of 1930s, 1940s development of Singapore became the stable port for the export of tin and rubber. And in the meantime, because of that stability, we forgot the fact that actually we had always been a global node rather than a Southeast Asia or a Malayan Peninsula, part of the Malayan Peninsula, right? And so uh, I think it's important to be, to, to be reminded, and as, as, as Professor Tan puts it nicely, it was one of the occasions of historic amnesia that we forgot our past. And at this point, I mean, you know, I think to recall, to recall that very vibrance, vibrancy before the early 20th century was very important. And I think consciously or otherwise, that has been capitalized by the idea of the global city that was reinvigorated in 1970s by Raja Ratna. Okay, so those are sort of my comments. My nose, my, my discomfort doesn't come, doesn't lie with the historical trajectory as laid out by Professor Tan, but more with the present question. As a trade, as, as, as we know, I mean, Singapore had to have a very liberal policy of migration of immigrants. That has clearly radically changed. And that's actually radically changed for a particularly group, a particular group of people that might constitute another instance of historical amnesia. We are particularly harsh on low-income migrants, forgetting that our own ancestors were largely low-income migrants. Any concept, any idea that the Singapore Chinese community was this cultured, literati, Confucian, self-possessed individuals was completely a myth, right? My father came with nothing, literally nothing on his back and gambling all the way through Southeast Asia. Uh, so, so I think that because low-end migrants are precisely the people that has to drive, that understand their impoverished condition, that aspires to a different life. And here, we are not allowing them not only not to stay, but at the same time, if they marry a Singaporean, creates immense difficulties in their family life. And it continues to be the case. So, I mean, what do we do about such an issue? On the intellectual vibrancy that, you know, that, that was our cosmopolitanism, we have, we have replaced it with very high level of anxieties of national culture, national identity, which is something 
I would be waiting to hear from you. Uh, and we have, unfortunately, I think, um, because of this desire to, and probably the need to build a nation, have actually narrowed our, our view of ourselves as an open society and actually you know, generated a certain conservatism in our cultural and intellectual outlook in contrast to uh, the past in that sense. And here, again, I mean, here I think Professor Dunn's mention of London and New York is an important comparison because we are proud of multiracialism, but we are nowhere close to being as complex in racial composition in London or New York. Thank you. So, do you respond or I said the floor is open? <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> <coughs> I, I, I think uh, Bing Huat has um, summarized very succinctly, I think, the message I was trying to get across and probably did a much better job than I. Um, I, 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 I the, the idea of Singapore as a nation state is actually a 50-year-old idea, right? But Singapore has a much longer history. And in its longer existence, I think it has evolved in very interesting ways. And we are now at a state in which we're a nation state with all its constraints it, and its challenges and its kind of limitations. But the point I was trying to make was we were not like that. And the question is whether this will be a normal state or would the normal state be an open, cosmopolitan pot city of a more liberal uh, nature? And, and I don't know the answer to this because, you know, as I said, historians always look backwards. We, we, do, we don't look forward. But sometimes, you know, these are questions that we need to ask ourselves um, as Singapore evolves. And the, the point is that um, while nation states have certain imperatives um, with technology and other things, the world has become very open again. And the disruptions that we've heard about are happening. And how would Singapore deal with this? And would it be a return to the instincts that have brought us this 700 years to where we are in terms of a vibrant, you know, uh, exciting kind of a community or a, a more constrained reaction of a more nationalist sort? And can we afford to do so? Because, I mean, the idea of a hinterland is that if you don't have a base, um, then um, how do you then engage? So I, I compare Singapore with Hong Kong, with London and with um, New York, but these are all cities with hinterlands. What is Singapore's hinterland? So if you look at any global city, they all have hinterlands, except Singapore. So, so where does that put us? And I think those are the questions that I was hoping to raise um, in this lecture. Okay, so we have about 20 minutes. <coughs> uh, the floor is open over there. Yeah. Please uh, tell us who you are and speak directly into the mic because I think it needs to be taped or something. Yeah. Hi, my name is Lam Chi Chung. I'm in investment management. Uh, excellent uh, talk. Thank you so much. Very, very uh, um, wide canvas. Uh, I just wanted to zoom in on one fact which I found interesting that you brought up uh, because it might 
illustrate a bit more about uh, Singapore's comparative advantages in the 19th century. Uh, you mentioned, if I recall correctly, that uh, one quarter of our exports at some point then was tin. Um, and I was wondering why that would be the case, because uh, I would have thought a lot of the tin would be in North Malaya, and so maybe it's closer to Penang, or if it came from somewhere like Bunker, it would be closer to Palembang. Uh, so, so why did it end up being processed and exported out of Singapore rather than these other port cities? Thank you. Singapore developed uh, as a, a staple port in many ways. Of course, one was at the point where it could things, uh, the commodities uh, that were being uh, um, taken from Malaya could be exported. So on the one hand, it had an infrastructure uh, where it could process and export very quickly because of its uh, transportation infrastructure. And then the, the roads and the other infrastructure that were built uh, brought all these things to Singapore and tin was smelted in Singapore and rubber process in Singapore as well. So basically, it was a point at which all these processes um, could be streamlined. And don't forget the trading credit systems as well. You know, all these big uh, British, Scottish agency houses, um, Gatri, Saim Dhabi, all that had operations here. And then there was local, a local kind of trading houses and so on. So I think the whole process came together very nicely and Singapore became the hub and that's why it was the key staple port, not Penang, um, from which all these things came down and were able to be processed and then sent out um, from here. So it was, again, a, one of these opportunistic um, moments where it could develop to serve the needs of the, of the, of the moment. Now, when a uh, steamship um, came into play and the Suez Canal was open, Singapore was a, mele uh, a major coaling station as well. So again, creating opportunities for itself and um, being relevant to the kinds of changes that were happening. And that's always been um, behind Singapore's evolution, success and survival um, moving across history. Um, okay, my name is Helen, uh, architect by profession. Uh, I have a question for Prof Tan. Uh, I'm looking forward, uh, I hope, uh, you, know, uh, you know, not so much looking backward. Uh, I hope you, um, so the question is this, what do you see are the threats and opportunities for Singapore going forward? And specifically, with respect to um, the ECRL, the East Coast Rail Line, which is currently suspended in Malaysia, but if it had gone ahead, would it have threatened our status, uh, Singapore status as a port? That is, what is, to what extent will it threaten Singapore's port status? And further, uh, further north, uh, we'll, from time to time, we hear about the building of this uh, uh, canal uh, at the Christmas uh, at Isthmus of Kra. Okay, so what is the likelihood of that happening? And again, will that threaten Singapore's status uh, as a port city? And even uh, maybe a bit more remote, even further up north, with the melting of the polar ice caps, there is also a, more, a better route uh, from the Pacific to the Atlantic across the Arctic Ocean. And how will that affect uh, Singapore's status as a port city? Would you uh, give us a share, uh, you know, what your, your prognosis on these prospects? The trouble with getting a historian to sit here is that uh, we're, we're not very good. But let me, let me try, let me try. <laughs> I, I think the general point behind your question is that there will always be challenges that Singapore will face. 
whatever competitive advantage or advantages that Singapore has at a moment um, can be taken away very quickly. And, and that was the point I was trying to make. You know, on the one hand, you were a maritime trading entrepreneur decline, and then what do you do? And then you have commodities coming out of Malaya. How do you position yourself as a staple port, and so on and so forth. And then even in the current modern form of, of port management, you've got to stay ahead of the game because you can't just sit back and wait, and then things will, I mean, other ports will overtake you. I remember as a boy reading my geography book, we were always very proud of the fact that Singapore was number one most busiest port or whatever. And you know that these things don't last forever. So how do you continue to ensure that you stay ahead of the curve? So you look at the port, you know, it's a locational advantage where we were situated, right? And that was why Raffles came looking for that strategic point where he could impose some control over the trade that was flowing through the Straits of Malacca to compete against the, the, the Dutch East Indies. Um, now, this locational advantage um, may not be permanent. And as I said in my previous lecture, while we think that uh, located here gives us that uh, port strategic advantage, you know, there are ports very nearby in Tanjong, Palapas, and Pasir Gudang that is located just a, in, in the same location. So the, the way forward is not really to just sit back and enjoy the strategic advantage given by location, but to stay ahead by innovating and by creating opportunities to do better, to do better. I think Hong Kong is experiencing the same problem with this port. I was reading a report not too, not too long ago, I think it was just about three or four weeks ago, where it's um, now facing quite severe challenges from Chinese ports, and it has to do something about it. Now, the Isthmus of Kra has been talked about, you know, once you cut through that, that, that point, do people need to sail that far south to come to Singapore? Probably not. But the point is that, you know, uh, you, you can wait for things to happen or you can try to then um, add to your advantage. So airports, teleports and other forms of technology that you can leverage on to uh, ensure that you stay ahead. I, I once heard a comment from... Um, a, a leader in Singapore saying that Singapore is always 10 years away from a disaster. Mm. 10 years away from a disaster. And I, I, I was wondering what he meant by that comment. Basically, he's saying that if we don't um, constantly be alert, reinvent ourselves and stay ahead, you know, something will hit us uh, before too long. And he said 10 years. I don't know whether that's true. So you can't wait for things to happen and then start reacting. So the melting of the polar cap, I was, I was always very tickled when Singapore was a member of the Arctic Council, right? And I was wondering, why do we want to be a member of the Arctic Council? But this is forward thinking, because when that thing melts and then a passage is cut across there, we better be in a position to find out how that will affect us and then be on the table to make decisions about um, some of those trade routes that may emerge. So I think that's where um, always thinking 10, 15 years ahead anticipating problems would be critical for the survival of Singapore. And here is where I think Bing Huat's point about that liveliness, that intellectual openness may position us much better than just to sit back and think that everything is taken care of because we are now a nation state and nothing could go wrong. So I think that's the point of, I guess, my lecture. And when, we talk, when I talk about you know, a city and a, and, a, and a country, and this is where the tensions will be because if people feel very secure being a citizen of a country, then um, thinking that nothing will go wrong, then I think uh, you know, we, we have to be careful whether that's a, a good way of thinking about our future. Okay. Good evening, Professor Tan.
like Professor Chua, so my name is Jin Yen, and like Professor Chua, I was very taken by a comment that Singapore, as a result of its status as a port city, became a hub for intellectual development and ferment in the 19th century. And I was wondering if you can shed more light about how that has developed up to the present day, and to comment a bit about what Singapore's intellectual and cultural footprint could be from your perspective, both as a historian and as a university president. Thank you. So uh, for the first part of your question, uh, may I refer you to uh, my last lecture, which you can find uploaded uh, on the IPS website, because I spent quite a bit of time explaining um, how Singapore was the centre of Malay printing and newspapers, and how uh, you know, groups came from the surrounding regions, they developed the technology for printing, they developed newspapers of different sorts, and then how Singapore was also the, the centre of the Hajj activities in the region, where people came, bought ships, and organised Hajj trips to um, uh, Saudi Arabia for the people around the region. So these were all innovations, and um, I did not have time to elaborate, but you've, you look at uh, colonial reports, there was always that anxiety uh, by colonial officials worried that all these radicals, these reformists, these revolutionaries were all congregating in Singapore because of print culture. You know, they could spread their word through the newspaper, newspaper circulated. And mind you, in a port city world, it's not just one location. Things will get to Rangoon, things will get to Calcutta, things will get to Penang, and that's how ideas spread. And with the uh, onset of uh, submarine telegraphy, things could move faster. So these were all notes of a lot of activity, vibrant activity. And, um, you know, there's, a, there's some literature on it, so if you want, I can point you to those literature. Then going ahead, um, have we lost some of it? I think we have. We have. In the name of nation building, there has to be some uniformity, some conformity. Um, even the way we define our populations, you know, have to follow certain patterns. And um, I guess it was necessary, if you ask me, um, as Singapore became a country rather unexpectedly in 1965. So you had to then build structures of state, you had to define what it means to be a Singapore citizen, a Singapore national, and then you have to have um, pledges of loyalty, you have to we have visions uh, of what it means to, be, belong, to belong to a country. Um, but all these were quite unnatural in my view because Singapore did not set out to be a separate country. In 1959, as I explained, all political leaders, Lee Kuan Yew included, was thinking of Singapore being a Malayan state. The nationalism was not Singapore nationalism, it was Malayan nationalism. And Malay was then adopted as a, national, as a language and people had to learn Malay. So the idea was preparing Singapore to go into Malaya. And then as I said, two years after getting into Malaya, 65, unexpectedly, we had to come out. And therefore, we had to become, in the, in the community of nations, a nation state. But as a port city, with that kind of functions and instincts, and not wanting to be a nation state, we suddenly have to be one. Now, how do you then prepare for it? So all these things had to be put in place. But going forward, um, this, what, uh, did what served us well in the first three or four decades of our after our independence, will it continue to serve us well? And that's a question we have to ask. And maybe we have to open up a little bit more and be more sort of adventurous and 
ask more difficult questions, and then imagine what the future would be for us. Because as I said, looking backwards will pose a, a danger because we think that things that used to work in the past will always work in the future, and that may not be the case. Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm Beverly Tan from Minoa Junior College, and firstly, I'd like to thank Professor Tan for the insightful speech and for Professor Chua for moderating this. And my question is, with the rise of China, to what extent would Singapore's status as, a, as an entrepreneurial trading hub be negatively impacted by the emergence of growing Chinese ports like Tianjin and Shenzhen? No, these competitions are not going to be limited to Hong Kong, right? As I mentioned, you know, Shenzhen, Tianjin, Shanghai. Uh, these, are, these are all competitions, competitors to Singapore. So Singapore will have to try to stay ahead and uh, be as competitive as possible. Um, we have certain advantages, we have certain expertise, knowledge and connections in this region. Uh, but as I said, you know, you constantly have to be alert and try to improve and make sure that, you know, um, you don't get overtaken uh, while looking backwards and not being aware that the comp competitors are moving very fast. I I'm sorry, did that answer your question? Yes. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, hi. Uh, my name is Ian. I actually actually asked a question last time. Ah, as well. okay. I remember you. Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> I hope that's a good thing. Um, so mine is a, uh, I think a little bit more of a simple question. You you keep talking about this idea about opening up. Mm. Um, what does that What does that mean, and what does it imply? So it, it means a number of things. I think one is um, the way uh, education is one a good example, right? I mean, um, whether education should just be vocational, where you provide uh, people with the knowledge and expertise to function in an economy, in a manufacturing economy, or education as a means of encouraging people to think differently, think out of the box, and be innovative. So I'm making a pitch for Yale and US College now, <laughs> Liberal Arts College. Um, and then I think uh, being open about, um, I guess, um, exploring different ideas, and even if these ideas don't conform to what um, the authorities may like, I think that's okay. I mean, but the idea is uh, you should be able to push boundaries uh, uh, where you can so that uh, we can think of different possibilities, different possibilities. So, and, and I think it's also a cultural change where um, people should not feel that, uh, well, and we have a very... Um, effective uh, and forward-looking government, but sometimes, you know, um, organic sort of um, effervescence of thoughts and of ideas are very important. And this should be um, something that we all do as citizens of the country and not to depend on the government to find all the answers. So these are some of the kinds of changes that could happen. And it could be a combination of various sorts, but uh, the idea is that, you know, if you want to think carefully about the future, I think you should not wait for someone to be giving you the answers. Okay, one more up there. Uh, my apologies. Uh, uh, by the way, thank you, Dr. Tan. Uh, it's like my first time here, so thank you for the illuminating lecture. So um, I have a very simple question. Uh, oh, it's over there. Uh, Sorry. Oh, down here. Uh, my deepest apologies. Mm, I was hoping to ask like a uh, simple question now. Uh. Like as you've mentioned, like the notion of a hinterland tends to be inherently political, like both in the ways that 
the notion of hinterland responds to concurrent political developments and in the context in which the notion of hinterland is formed. So like as you know, as you mentioned, like the notion of a Malayan hinterland was fixed in the immediate uh, post-war era when like Malayan independence was like like was in the forefront of like the minds of like the people in the Singaporean independence movement. And like right now, like our search for multiple hinterlands is quite connected to like our view of the world as like our hinterland. So my question is, do you think it will ever be able to escape the political connotations of the hinterland? And in this age when like the notion of hinterland is becoming inherently politicized with Malaysia and increasingly China pulling like uh pulling like on us to like try and exploit this notion of a uh, cultural or like uh, economic hinterland to make us do what they want. Do you think you'll ever be able to escape it or at least come to a balance with it? Thank you very much. I think the point I was trying to make is that, you know, in the global world, you know, do you still operate on the idea of a fixed hinterland? And probably the answer for a country like Singapore is no. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you just have to realize that it's a small country that's open and that depends on trading systems all over the world, we are very vulnerable. And uh, any sort of global shifts, uh, trade wars between China and US will affect us. So I think that is the lot of Singapore as a small port city, a small global city. Okay, two questions, one from there and one from down here, and then we will have to, okay. Okay, um, yeah. hi, I'm Donovan, I do cybersecurity, and I realized that the average age of the lecture hall is actually quite high. So I represent the younger people, and I would like to ask a very simple futuristic question. So we noticed the certain narratives of looking for hinterlands and eternally looking for places where we can do trade and stuff like that. So I would think that kind of defines us as a nation. Now, of course, in my generation, there's of course this talk about what really defines Singapore. And there's of course this talk about Singapore being just about being economics, about looking for economic growth, etc. So how do you reconcile the fact that we are eternally vulnerable and hence we must always look out for opportunity and the fact that now, hmm, there's this nationalistic drive and hence Okay, let's take a step back. Maybe we are. Uh, we need to cut very quickly. We can get a whole speech, okay? Yeah. Get the question ready. Oh, the question has already been asked. <laughs> Which is what? So, how do you reconcile the two contrasting narratives that we have? One that we are always looking out for economic yes. opportunities, and the other part where we are, well, a nation, and we should just take a step back and think more than just economics. Fine, okay. Uh, here, what? Down here. Can somebody give her a mic here, please? Huh. Oh. Hmm? What's happening? <laughs> oh, is that the one? Oh. Well, there's one there and one in okay, the front here. Okay, um, we, got, we will run a bit, a bit uh, over time, but go ahead. Uh, um, my, my question is that um, perhaps we could, if, if we could, um, look at the past uh, for when, when, we look, when we study hinterlands and to see ourselves as global citizens. Um, I just very quickly share with you my great-grandmother. No, 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 please uh, don't. Oh, okay. No, you where, just want to say we should be global citizens and let's stop there. Okay, with global citizens, uh, the women of this country a hundred years ago saw themselves as part of this and they raised money in two world wars. Yeah, and we're still and raising money for the world, but actually, I mean... In the war. Uh, a favorite adage is that in war, truth is the first casualty. 
I'm glad that that is not the case with revisionist historians. Mm. And I do thank you for you know, the very, you reminding us that a generation's experience is the next generation's history. Uh, but it has saddened me in these excellent talks. It has saddened me, and I'm thinking of my grandchildren, that plants, agriculture and farming, and also economic botany are virtually ignored. And they're being ignored in the current discussion as well. This greatly saddens me. So that's a comment. So yeah, you have it's a two comment. Questions. Yeah, I, I guess the first question uh, that was asked, I, I don't think I, I don't see them as a binary issue. No, I mean you're a nation state and you want to always protect your interests, but at the same time you want to be economically successful. I mean that's that's common to all uh, national entities. So I, I don't see that as uh, mutually exclusive or in conflict. And then the global citizen, I think increasingly, yes, uh, people are identifying themselves uh, beyond the nation state. But of course, you know, the, your first, the, you know, identities are very complex thing. They're multi-layered. So you can't say that you're either this or that. And I think all of us uh, bring with us or in heaviness uh, different types of identities. And many of us travel very extensively. So I don't think that's a problem being a Singaporean who's well-traveled that identify with issues of the world. So I, I don't see that as, a, again, a conflict. Okay, it's exactly 8 o'clock, uh, so congratulate me for timekeeping. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you and have a good evening. Thank you, professors. Um, the next lecture by Prof Tan will be on 6 March. Please look out for the announcements. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>